Section 3 of The Mare Digi, Volume 1. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Mare Digi, Volume 1, by G. F. Young. Chapter 3, Giovanni de Bici, Part 1. Born 1360, died 1428. In the year 1400, the Medici were an ordinary middle-class family in Florence. The family can be traced back as far as the year 1201, when Chiarissimo, eldest son of Gian Buono de' Medici and a member of the town council, is noted as being the owner of various houses and towers in the Mercato Vecchio. But the only branch of it with which we are concerned is that which made so great a name in history, and was destined to run an eventful course of nearly three hundred and fifty years. Of this branch, Giovanni de' Medici was at this time the head. For some reason or other, his father, Averardo de' Medici, was nicknamed by his companions Bici. Among the Medici, the same Christian names recur so frequently that each is in history known by some addition or sobriquet, and Giovanni, the founder of the historic branch of the family, is always known as Giovanni de Bici, i.e. Giovanni, the son of Bici. He was at this time a man of forty years of age, and highly respected for his character and business ability. The family were bankers and already possessed of considerable wealth which Giovanni by his financial ability increased. Several of his ancestors had taken part in public affairs. His great-grandfather, Averardo, who had begun the prosperity of the family by successful trading operations, had been gonfalonier in 1314. His grandfather, Salvestro, had been one of the envoys of the Republic, deputed to conclude the treaty with Venice in 1336, and two of his father's first cousins had been gonfalonieres in, respectively, 1349 and 1354. But Giovanni de Bici de Medici came of a family which had signalised themselves in another way than this for they had on several occasions taken a prominent part in the struggles of the people against the nobles, Grandi. A distant cousin of his father, also named Giovanni, had in 1343 been seized and put to death by the tyrant of Florence, Walter de Brienne, Duke of Athens, as one of the most dangerous of the citizens, Popolani. And when Giovanni de Bici was eighteen years old, he had seen in 1378 a distant cousin of his grandfather, another Salvestro, by his powerful words in the Signoria, bring about the riot known as that of the Ciampi, the weavers, dyers and minor workmen of the Guild of Wool, which riot, we are told, broke the power of the nobles and destroyed the oligarchy of the Parte Guelfa while another cousin of his father's, Vieri, had pacified the rebellion of 1393. Thus the family had as its tradition antagonism to the nobles and championship of the cause of the people, 
Giovanni de Bici was destined to go far in the same course, as well as to found a family whose influence was to spread far beyond the sphere of the petty politics of Florence. Let us first see what, in this year 1400, were the conditions surrounding him, one, in his own city, and two, in the larger world beyond it. 1. Florence, after fierce struggles between rival factions for a 150 years, had at last settled down with the most democratic government on record. In 1260, the banished Ghibellines, under Farinata degli Uberti, had at the Battle of Monte Aperto defeated the Guelphs and re-entered Florence in triumph. The Ghibellines had thereupon proposed to raise Florence to the ground. Against this, Farinata degli Uberti had raised his single voice and prevailed, for which act he has obtained lasting honour in Florence, and his statue, the only Ghibelline one, has received a place among those of Florence's greatest men in the Uffizi colonnade. Then had succeeded in 1289 the Battle of Campaldino, giving the final victory to the Guelphs, whereupon the community had been divided into guilds, arti, whose representatives formed the governing body, the Signoria. In 1298 had begun the building of the cathedral, and of the Palazzo della Signoria, the order for the latter, to Arnolfo di Cambio, the architect, stating that it was required for the greater security of the Signoria in this city, so given to sudden and violent tumults. But the internecine strifes did not cease, even though the Ghibellines had been driven out. The same fierce conflicts as before broke out under new names. Cerci versus Donati, White Guelphs versus Black Guelphs, and so on. At length, in 1343, Walter de Brienne, a foreigner whom the city had made its governor, was driven out when a time of anarchy and frequent revolutions followed, during which occurred in 1348 the great plague described by Boccaccio, and in 1378 the above-mentioned riot of the Ciompi. As a result, the Signoria was reconstituted and composed of representatives, priors, from each of the 21 guilds, instead of from the more important ones only. These were directed to be chosen every two months, afterwards extended to a longer period, while it was ruled that no noble should be eligible as a member of the Signoria. The president of the latter body was the Gonfalonier, chosen from among the members of the Signoria, and elected for a similar short period. Nor did even this satisfy Florence's fiercely democratic instincts. Although all power was vested in the representatives of the various guilds, yet on any large question the great bell, the Bacca, in the tower of the Palazzo della Signoria, summoned the whole male population into the square below, when the question was decided, ostensibly at any rate, by popular acclamation. This form of government continued for 150 years. It had been established about 20 years at the time our story begins. 
Passionately, indeed, was Florence enamoured of freedom. In a struggle of some two hundred years, she had first gradually shaken herself free from subordination to the emperors, then fought against and thrown off the power of the nobles, and lastly had established the most republican republic the world has ever seen. And in deep dread of being brought again under the yoke, she had developed so great a jealousy of any action, either by an individual or a family, tending, however remotely, to threaten her independence, that this feeling had become a mania. There was a very short shrift in Florence for anyone suspected of harbouring an intention of exalting himself into any position of authority above that of an ordinary citizen. Florence was at this time at a high level of power, ruling over various subject cities and constantly increasing her territory by little wars with neighbouring states. Republics such as Florence were of a peculiar kind, since only the citizens of the capital city possessed any political power. None others were allowed any voice in the policy of the state. This complete subjection to the capital city accounts for the fierce struggles of Pisa, Prato, Pistoia, Volterra, and other cities gradually conquered by Florence, against being subdued by her. It is also, no doubt, the reason why history at this period always speaks of Florence to denote that state which at a later period we speak of as Tuscany. As regards trade and commerce, Florence was at this time the most flourishing state in Europe. Her citizens owned banks in all countries, and the golden florin had become the general European standard of value, marking the leading position in commerce held by Florence. Macaulay, speaking of the revenue about this time, says, quote, The revenue of the Republic amounted to 300,000 florins, a sum which, allowing for the depreciation of the precious metals, was at least equivalent to £600,000 sterling, a larger sum than England and Ireland, two centuries later, yielded to Elizabeth. The chief trade was in wool and woolen cloth, both that produced by Florence itself and that sent there from other countries, to be dyed and refined by a secret process and re-exported a trade memorialised in the still-existing names of two celebrated streets in Florence, Calimala, or Calimara, and the Pelicceria. And the Guild of the Wool Merchants was the most important in Florence, so much so that to this guild was committed the work of building the cathedral. The principal part of the trade of Florence was with England. 2. Turning now to the larger world outside Florence, we find the other states in Europe situated as follows. Venice, a republic of a very different kind and ruled by an oligarchy of nobles, was rapidly advancing to the height of her power, having in 1380 crushed her maritime rival Genoa, and was year by year extending her territories by fresh conquests. Milan, an imperial duchy, was under the rule of her great duke, Gian Galeazzo Visconti, the most capable of that family, the builder of the Cathedral of Milan and the Certosa of Pavia. 
he had conquered almost all northern Italy, extending his dominions even as far as Perugia and Spoleto, was at this time only resisted by Florence, and was in full expectation of shortly subduing Florence also, when he would make himself king of Italy. Naples and Sicily, a kingdom, but of the feeblest kind, was in its usual state of anarchy. The bone of contention between the rival houses of Anjou and Aragon, as it had been for a hundred and fifty years. The Papacy The situation of the papacy at this time was most deplorable. There had in 1378 begun the Great Schism, with rival popes at Avignon and Rome, a state of things which had brought down the papacy to the very dust, for there was here no case of an anti-pope, both popes had been duly elected, and each had an equal right to be considered the true pope. On the side of the French pope were France, Scotland, Spain, Portugal, Savoy, and Lorraine. On the side of the Italian pope were England, Germany, Italy, Denmark, Sweden, and Poland. Whereas salvation was held to depend on being in communion with the true pope, None during all this period could feel sure that he was so, while it was at any rate certain that one half of Europe was not. The position was intolerable, and its results during the forty years it lasted were such as to degrade the papacy to the utmost depth of humiliation. As regards the remaining countries of Europe, in England, Henry IV had just usurped the kingdom from Richard II, whom he had murdered. In France, Charles VI was king, but was mad and the country in the greatest disorder. Germany was a mass of insignificant states, and the emperor almost a cipher, the seven princely electors invariably choosing as emperor some prince of small dominions and power, who would be unable to oppose their own assumption of independence. In the Eastern Empire, Constantinople was being closely pressed by the Ottoman Turks. Spain was not as yet one country, Aragon and Castile being still petty independent kingdoms, while all the southern half of Spain was held by the Saracens, or, as they were called, the Moors. The above is an outline of the general state of Europe before those great changes began, in which the Medici were to play so large a part. The Florence in which Giovanni de Bici passed his life, though very different in aspect from that with which we are acquainted, nevertheless contained a good deal which we should still recognise. The baptistery, then already many hundred years old, was much the same as now. So also the Bargello, built about a hundred and fifty years before this time, and close to it the Bardia, built in 1330. The Palazzo della Signoria, known to us as the Palazzo Vecchio, built in 1298, was, as to the front portion, much as we see it, but did not extend at the back down the Via de Gondi, while along the front ran a raised platform, the Ringhiera, from which proclamations were made. The Loggia dei Lanzi had lately been completed, the cathedral, which had been building for over a hundred years, was still unfinished, and its great dome had not even been begun. 
while many doubted whether so vast a space could ever be covered in this way. Its beautiful campanile, Giotto's tower, was finished. The Ponte Vecchio, with its shops, though not then jewellers' shops, was as now, except, of course, for the passaggio on the roof of the shops, constructed long afterwards. Of the two chief churches, Santa Croce and Santa Maria Novella, the latter was completed, except for its façade, while Santa Croce was approaching completion. The city was surrounded by its ancient and picturesque walls, which are now gone, but its main streets still follow the same course as then, and many of them present much the same general appearance. Or San Michele, the curious square church, built by the Guild of the Wool Merchants, was nearly finished, and behind it stood, as now, the guild house of this celebrated Arte della Lana. As we look at this old house of the great guild of wool, with their emblem of the lamb over the door, and think of the many works in which this guild were then occupied in Florence, we cannot but be impressed with the thought of how many other things besides money-making engaged the attention of this enlightened body of merchants, and of how much in Florence's afterglory has had its birth in that now little-noticed old building. And it was in connection with these things that a movement was about to begin, which was soon to be the paramount question in Florence. For in our review of the Florence of 1400, we have also to think of the existing state of things in regard to art and learning. These, though in the previous century roused from their long sleep by Dante, Giotto and Petrarch, appeared to have sunk back again into slumber. Dante, whose swan-like dirge of the departing Middle Ages had inspired all mankind for a time, had died eighty years before, and no successor to him had arisen. Giotto, the shepherd-boy whose kiss had aroused the sleeping beauty, Art, from her nine centuries of slumber in her Byzantine palace, had died sixty-three years before. His great pupil, Orcagna, had died thirty-two years before, and the painters of the time, the Giotteschi, had no idea beyond that of a slavish copying of Giotto, and so had sunk into a conventionalism almost as complete as that Byzantine tradition from which Giotto had rescued art. Lastly, Petrarch, the great scholar who had led men to study the long-buried writings of the Classic Age, had passed away twenty-six years before, and no other like him had arisen. Thus, when the year 1400 dawned, it seemed as though the movement, which had begun in the time of Dante and Giotto, was merely a passing phase, already moribund, if not defunct. It was, however, not so. There was soon to be a fresh movement destined far to surpass all that had gone before, and the latter half of Giovanni de Bici's life, with which we have to do, the period from 1400 to 1428, is the time of this morning of the Renaissance, of that extraordinary outburst of art in every branch, which, felt in some degree in other cities of Italy also at this time, 
seemed in Florence to permeate the whole people with its throbbing life, producing results the influence of which was, before another hundred years were over, to be felt to the utmost bounds of Europe. End of section three. Read by Jane Bennett.